I'm going to read once more the great passage that has been occupying our attention for a number of Sunday mornings, namely the words that are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 5 and beginning to read at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but uh, I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now we've been <coughs> working our way uh, through that great statement, which of course is primarily designed uh, for the edification of husbands, but which, as we've been seeing, has a, a great and uh, glorious message for all Christian people. Because the apostle, in giving his message to the husband, does it through this particular medium of the comparison of the relationship between Christ and the church. That is the analogy that the husband is ever to bear in mind. And so we are looking at these two doctrines that are to be found in this one statement. The first, and of course the greatest, is this doctrine concerning Christ and the church. We start with that because, uh, clearly, it is the highest and the most important thing of all. And secondly, because the husband will never understand truly Christian teaching with regard to his uh, functions and duties unless he is clear about that other doctrine of the relationship of Christ to the church. So we've been working our way through it, and we've seen uh, how the apostle tells us that the love we are to be concerned about he is the love which Christ has shown for the church, and he has shown it in practice. And a love which doesn't show itself in practice is unworthy of the name. He proved it by dying for the church. He gave himself for it. He proves it by what he is doing for the church. He proves it by his ultimate ambition for the church and what he will yet do for the church. But we saw last Sunday morning that the doctrine goes even further than that. The supreme thing, after all, says the apostle, is this relationship. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And we considered something of the teaching which tells us how that has come to pass, that we are as much part of the Lord Jesus Christ as Eve was of Adam, and that what happens in marriage is that this unity which seems to have been broken, is again restored. The twain shall be one flesh. Well, now then, it remains for us 
to do one further thing only but before we come to the application of all this to the particular duties of husbands towards their wives. For there is implicit in all this which the apostle has been saying something further, which of course is of great importance when we come to the practical application, but which is also of inestimable value to us one by one as Christian people as we realize our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ and realize that together we as members of the church of God are the bride of Christ. What is that? Well, let me put it like this. Because of all that we've been considering, it follows of necessity that the husband bestows certain things upon his bride, upon his wife. And we are looking, going to look this morning at what the Lord Jesus Christ, as the bridegroom of the bride, which is the church, we are going to look at what he bestows upon the church. Now, it is as we look at this that we realize again the glorious privilege of being Christians and of members of the Christian church. I'm holding you with this truth because it is my increasing and profound conviction that the main problem, the main trouble today is the failure of Christian people, you and myself, to realize the privileges and the dignities of being members of the Christian church and of the body of Christ. I know and I agree that it's right to be concerned about the state of the world. We can't be Christians without being concerned about that. But I cannot understand how anybody can be complacent about the state of the church. Surely, the ultimate explanation of the state of the world is the state of the church. And to me, the saddest and the most grievous thing of all at the present time is the failure of Christian people to realize what the New Testament tells us about ourselves and what it means to be members of the body of Christ. In a world that attaches such significance to honors and to glories and positions, is it not amazing that we can regard our membership of the church as we do? We regard it as almost something... Uh, as a kind of dignity that we confer upon the church. Instead of realizing that it's the highest and the most glorious privilege that people can ever have or ever know, we regard what happens in the church as a task and as a duty and are rather pleased with ourselves if we do this or that. Now that is just to betray, I say, a complete failure to understand what it really means to be members of this body, which is the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let us therefore look at this and look at some of the things that he bestows upon us. Some of the things that are true of us as Christian people here this morning. Oh, if the church but realized these things, She'd no longer be apologetic and languishing and drooping and miserable to look at. She'd be filled with a sense of pride and of joy and of glory. What are these things he bestows upon us? Well, the first thing, of course, is his life. 
We've already been looking at that, but I again must mention it in this connection. He gives us a part of his own life. We become sharers in his own life. That is what happens, isn't it, when a man gets married? He was living his own life, but now he no longer lives his own life exclusively. His wife becomes a sharer in his life. As she is a part of him, she is a sharer in his life and activity and everything that is true concerning him, as I'm going to try to show you. And uh, the first thing a man has to learn who gets married is this, that when he's confronted by situations, he now has to do something new. Before, the main problem for him was, how does this affect me? What is my reaction to this? But he no longer stops at that. He now has to think also, how will, how will it affect her? He no longer lives this isolated life, as it were, on his own. But he has another to consider always, who is a sharer of his life. A thing may be all right for him, but there is somebody else to consider. Now, I could elaborate this at great length. I could speak out of much pastoral experience of troubles and difficulties which I've had to deal with because husbands have forgotten just that very point. Let me give you one illustration of it. I give it because it's one that I've often had to meet. And I've often been misunderstood for what I've said about this, but let me say it in order to illustrate the point. A man has come to me and has said that he feels called to go to the foreign mission field. Well, that's all right, that's excellent. But then I have to ask the question, and I always do ask it, if he's a married man, what does your wife say about this? And sometimes I've had to deal with men who don't seem to be concerned about that. As if it is still a purely personal decision. But it isn't. A man has no right to isolate himself, even over a matter like that, from his wife, the twain of one flesh. And he has to consider his wife's views. Now, we've already been dealing with the duties of wives towards their husbands. And there is a great deal to be said on that side also. But the point I'm establishing is this. That it is a very poor Christian who says, well now, if I'm called, therefore it doesn't matter what my wife says. It does matter. That's a complete misunderstanding of this teaching. But let us look at it from the other aspect this morning. And realize that we are sharers of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, it's a staggering thought. But we are entitled to say this. That we are ever in his mind. That in all his outlook, his outlook, we have our part and have our place. We are in Christ, we are sharers of his life. The apostle in writing to the Colossians use this, uses this extraordinary phrase in the third chapter, verse 4. He says, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear. He is our life, which is another way of saying that we are sharers of his life. Now, there is nothing I say beyond that. But there it was, rarely last Sunday morning, in the statement that we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We are looking at it from a slightly different angle. Not so much from the angle of the mystical union, as that he is conscious that he is giving of his life, sharing it. 
that we are taken into it and become part and parcel of his life. But let me go on and put this in its various manifestations. Here is the next, of course. He bestows upon us his name. We take on us his name because he gives us his name. He bestows his name upon us. What are we? Well, we are called Christians. And that is the greatest truth about us. We are no longer what we were. We've changed our names. A woman getting married changes her name. You see how eloquent that is in expounding to us the teaching of the great apostle in this fifth chapter of this epistle to the Ephesians. And what a lot it has to say about this modern foolish notion called feminism. When a woman gets married, she gives up her name, she takes on the name of her husband. That's biblical, that's the custom of the whole world. That teaches us the relationship of husband and wife. It isn't the uh, husband who changes his name, it's the wife. Now, there's been a striking illustration of this recently, and I refer to it because I hope it will help to fix this truth in our mind. You remember what has happened recently in the case of the royal family. How the name of the husband has been brought in, and very rightly so. It is unscriptural not to do so. It is the name of the husband, not the name of the wife. And it doesn't matter who they are. This is the scriptural position. And there is a notable and striking illustration of the realization of this principle and the putting of it into practice. Well now, but look at all this from our standpoint as members of the Christian church. He has put his name upon us. And there is no greater compliment that can ever be paid than that. That is, I say, the expression of this whole married relationship. And, of course, we get it in many ways in the New Testament. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile, barbarian or Scythian, bond nor free. There used to be. Those were the names that were on us before. No longer. We are now Christians. We've got a new name. Oh, says the apostle, this same apostle in writing to the Corinthians in his second letter, chapter 5. Henceforth, he says, I know no man after the flesh. I used to know people after the flesh. I, as a Jew, used to say, what's that man? Is he a Jew? If not, he's no good. But he says, I no longer think in those categories. I've got new terms. What I want to know now is this man a Christian. I don't care what his old name was. This is the name I'm interested in. Christian. Got the name of Christ on him. And so we realize that the Lord Jesus Christ bestows upon us his name. It's as real as this, says the apostle again in writing to the Galatians. I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. That's the idea. He is submerged as it were, yet he goes on to say, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a perfect declaration that is of this married relationship. There is a sense in which his whole life is in the husband, and yet he hasn't become lost altogether. He's still there, the life I now live in the flesh. That is this mystery of the married relationship. But we hold on, I say, to this great fact that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is upon us. And what matters and should matter to every one of us this morning 
is that we've changed our names. Here in the realm of the church, the other names don't matter at all. What's it matter what a man's name is? What's it matter what his post is, what his ability is, what anything is? Oh, this is the thing that matters about him, that the name of Christ is on him. We're all one there, we're all together in him. He's taken us. The church is the bride of Christ. And he says, look here, forget that old name. Take my name on you. You belong to me. So you get this, you see, in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 12. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down from heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. That's it. Write thy new name upon my heart, thy new best name of love. And this is the astounding thing that happens to all of us Christians, all of us as members of this body which is the bride of Christ. You've been given a name by the Prince of Glory. And wonder of wonders, it is his own name. Now I say this is the bestowing of the honor. There's no greater honor or glory than this. You're lost in a new name. And it is the highest name of all. We read that a day is coming when at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. And that's the name that's given to us as parts of the bride of Christ. Well, then we go on and see that out of that comes the next thing that we are sharers in his dignity, in his standing, in his great and glorious position. The apostle has already told us this in chapter 2, where he has told us the amazing thing that um, he has raised us up together with Christ and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is true of us now. If we are Christians at all, we are in Christ, and that means that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. Of course, wherever the bridegroom is, the bride is also. And the standing and the dignity and the position that belong to him belong to her. It doesn't matter who she was, not a bit. The moment she becomes his bride, she shares all that with him. And woe betide anybody who doesn't accord to her the position and the dignity. There is no greater insult that can be offered to the bridegroom than a refusal to do that. Well, this is the truth, says the New Testament about the Christian. And it is something that we are told abundantly. Did you notice there was one statement of it in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, verse 22, where our Lord says, And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. There it is. The glory, he says, which the Father had given him, he has given to his people. Of course, it is something that happens invariably in a marriage. The bride being a part of the husband, having his name, has his whole position. The glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. But listen to other statements of it. Have you realized things like this? The Lord Jesus Christ said about himself, I am the light of the world. That's his claim. 
There's no bigger claim. There's no higher claim. I am the light of the world. The world is in darkness, he says, apart from me. I am the only light that the world can ever receive. Everything else is but an attempt of men to discover light, and they never discover it. There is no light apart from Christ. Now, there's his claim. But then do you remember what he says about us? He says, you are the light of the world. You are. In other words, because he is and our relationship to him, we likewise become the light of the world. Now, Christian people, do we realize that this morning? It's very difficult for us to realize it, isn't it? We are but a small number in this pagan land of ours. Ten percent claiming to be Christian. Five, only half of those attending a, the house of God. And ah, we're apologetic and we're ashamed of ourselves. Do you know the truth about us is this? We are the light of the world this morning. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who said that. This dark, evil world knows no light apart from the light which you and I are disseminating in it this morning. Do we realize that? But think of it at the moment from the aspect of our dignity, our glory. What he is, he makes us. You can't help this. And then, of course, there are many other very wonderful statements of this. Listen to him again in the book of Revelation, speaking to the church of the Laodiceans of everybody. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set with my Father in his throne. Because the church is the bride of Christ, she's going to sit with him in the throne. A commoner, you say, yes, it doesn't matter. She's married to the prince, and she shares with him the throne. There is the dignity, there is the privilege that he confers upon us. And then listen to this. The Apostle Paul, in trying to teach the members of the church at Corinth, something of this greatness and this glory. Puts it like this to them. Know ye not, he says, in chapter 6 of the first epistle, in verse 2, No, do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? Then, know ye not that we shall judge angels? No, that's about you and about me. Look at those miserable members of the church at Corinth. What's the matter with you, says the apostle? What are you quarreling amongst yourselves for? Why are you boasting of this man or that man or another man? Don't you realize that every one of you as a Christian is in this relationship to Christ that you're going to judge the world, you're going to judge angels? Here is the dignity that belongs to us. Indeed, let me put it like this. Think of the Christian in relationship to the angels. Here, do you realize that we are meant for a destiny which will put us above the angels? The angels are wonderful beings and they excel in strength. But you know, we are destined for a position which will be above the angels. Listen to the author of the epistle to the Hebrews putting this. He says, For, not, for unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownedst him with glory and honor, and it set him of the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. But says somebody, 
I don't see all things put in subjection under men. What are you talking about? Oh, no, says the men, we don't see yet all things put under him, but we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned now with glory and honor. And that means this, that you and I are going to be in that position. We already have it upon us. We don't see it, but it's true of us now. We are above the angels because we are the bride of Christ. And as he is above them, crowned with glory and honor in him and seated with him in the heavenly places, we have that dignity and that greatness and that position upon us. And that leads me to my next point, which is this, that we share in his privileges. The moment a woman becomes the bride of a man, she shares his privileges. Whatever they are, she becomes partaker of them and sharer of them. What the apostle is saying here is that this is true of the church. What do we share? Well, we share the Father's love. You know, I read a verse at the beginning, which in many ways is to me the most astounding verse in the whole Bible. Did you notice it? The 23rd verse of the 17th chapter of John's Gospel. He says that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Now there it is. It is a statement to the effect that God the Father has loved us Christian people as he loves his own son. You see what it means is this. That because of our relationship to him, we are in that relationship to God. Here is a man whose son has got married. He had no daughters before. His son gets married. And what he says to the bride of his son is this. He says, you are my daughter. I've never had a daughter before, but you are my daughter. And he regards her as his daughter. She's one with his son. And therefore he bestows his fatherly love upon her, that the world may know that thou hast loved them as thou hast loved me. That's the privilege. And of course it works out like this. It gives us an access to the Father. The Father is ever ready to receive the bride of his Son. She hadn't had access to him before. There was no relationship. But the moment she becomes married to the son, she has a right of access into the presence of the father. As the father is ready to receive the son and to give the son privileges which he wouldn't grant to his most trusted and favorite servants, he grants them to his son and he grants them to the bride because she is the bride of his son. Christian people. Do we avail ourselves of this high privilege? Do you realize that you have a right of entry and of access into the presence of the Father? Though he is the governor of the whole universe, if you have a need, remember you have a right of entry. He won't refuse you for his son's sake. Bride of Christ, he'll always listen to you. He will always have time for you. There is no privilege higher than this. He loves us as he loves him. And he gives us this right of access and of entry into his holy presence.
Oh, let me hurry on. I'm simply giving you headings to think about and to meditate about. You know, we ought to be spending our time with these points, thinking about them. When you get on your knees, don't start speaking. Stop and think. Think before you get on your knees even. Realize what you're doing, who you are. And because you are what you are, what is true of you, and the rights and the privileges it gives you. And then, of course, go on to consider this. The possessions that he gives us, we are sharers in his possessions. The Apostle Paul, in an extraordinary statement, writes again to the church at Corinth. And he says, what are you troubling about? Why are you dividing amongst yourselves and jealous of one another and seeking this and coveting that? What's the matter with you, says Paul? All things are yours. Everything. All things are yours. I don't care what they are, says Paul. They're all yours. Why? Because you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. You look that up in 1 Corinthians at the end of chapter 4. Now, isn't this, I ask you, I put it to your judgment, am I not right when I say that the real tragedy today is the failure of the church to realize the truth about herself? All things are yours. Everything. The cosmos is ours in a sense. Why? Well, because we belong to Christ. Oh, the Apostle Paul, of course, was thrilled by this, you know, and it, it's a test of our Christianity, it's a test of our spirituality as to whether we are moved and thrilled by these things. My dear friend, you may be having a hard time, you may be persecuted, you may be despised, people may be laughing at you because you're a Christian. Do you know what you say to yourself? You say, because we are children, we are therefore heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. What's it matter what the world thinks or says? All things are yours. Joint heirs with Christ. But I do like the way in which this again is put by the author of the epistle to the Hebrews in the second chapter and verse 5. I've already read it. I want to read it again. Listen to this. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. It's a pity it's translated like that. It's an awkward translation. It's an odd sort of negative. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come of which we speak. What he's saying is this. He has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but to us. What is this? What is this world to come about which he's speaking? Well, I'll tell you what it is. The world to come of which he's speaking is... This old world in which you and I are living this morning, yes, but not as it is now. It is this same world when Christ shall have come back and shall have destroyed all his enemies and all evil and every vestige and remains of evil. It is when the great burning shall have taken place, the great purification, the regeneration, when there shall be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's the world to come of which we speak. And this is essential Christian message. This world that you and I are in this morning is only a passing world. This is not the real world. This is not the lasting world. This is not the world. This is the world as man has made of it. This is the chaos that man has produced. 
And the world, of course, is very interested in it and everybody wondering what this last conference is going to achieve. Is there going to be disarmament? Is war going to be banished? Is everything going to be perfect for the rest? No, 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 no. This is an evil world and evil and sin will go on manifesting themselves in it. But there is a world to come. The new Jerusalem that will come down from heaven. This old world in all its pristine glory. This old world as God made it at the beginning but even more glorious. For the son shall be dwelling in it himself and his bride with him. The world to come of which we speak. Who is going to live in that world? Who is going to inherit that world? Well, says this man, it isn't the angels, it's you. For not unto angels hath he subjected, but unto us. We are the heirs of this glory. Christian people, do you ever envisage that? Do you ever remind yourself of that? You're having a hard time with the world and the flesh and the devil and with difficulties and obstacles. I say, turn away from it. Don't look at it. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Lift up your heads. You share his inheritance, his possessions. You've married him. He's married you, rather. And he puts these things into your hands, sharers of his possessions. Then let me go on and emphasize this. We are sharers of his interests, his plans, and his purposes. Co-workers together with God. Don't think of your local church or any other church in terms of just you yourself and what you are doing or your denomination or this or that. That's all right. But I say rise above it. It's his interest. I quote it again, you are the light of the world. He's got a purpose with respect to this world, and you know, you and I are in it now. The husband tells his wife everything. She knows his every secret, his every desire, every ambition, every hope, every project that ever enters into his mind. She's one with him. He tells her things that he wouldn't say to anybody else. She shares everything. There's nothing kept back. There's nothing hidden. That's the relationship of husband and wife. It is the relationship of Christ and the church. Partners with him in this business of saving men. Do you know the interest? Do you feel it? Do you think about it? Do you prize the privilege of being sharers in the secret? Do you feel something of the burden? Are you helping him? That's what a Christian is for. That's what a wife is for. And the church is the bride of Christ. How often do you pray for the success of the preaching of the gospel? To what extent will you be concerned about my evangelistic message in this building tonight? Will you think about it? Will you feel you're a part of it? Will you pray about it? A wife worthy of the name doesn't need to be exhorted to do so. She counts it her greatest privilege to be helping her husband. She's vitally interested in all he does and in its success. The church is the bride of Christ. He shares it all with us. Let us, I say, realize the thing and rise to the dignity of it all. But let me mention another thing which to me is one of the most fascinating and charming aspects of it all. He not only shares his possessions and his interests, his plans and his purposes with us, he shares his servants with us. You may have been a Cinderella. The whole church is a Cinderella in a rags, slaving 
having a hard and a difficult life, doing all the chores for the other sisters. Ah, yes, but Cinderella is married to the prince. And what happens? Instead of having to slave like this, she has her servants. Whose servants? His servants. Because she's become the bride of this prince, all his servants are her servants. And they minister to her as they do to him. And did you know that this was true of us? Let me go back once more to the epistle to the Hebrews, and here it is in the first chapter. The writer is comparing and contrasting the Lord Jesus Christ with the angels, and this is how he puts it. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Then are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? What he means is this, you see, that because we are Christians, the angels of God are our servants. That's, what he's, that's how he describes an angel. An angel is a ministering spirit who is sent forth to serve and to minister to us who are the heirs of this world to come of which he's speaking, this glory that is to come. I'm afraid we neglect the ministry of angels. We don't think about them. But whether we realize it or not, you know, there are angels who are looking after us. They're round and about us. We don't see them, but that doesn't mean anything. We don't see the most important things. We only see the things that are visible. But you know, we are surrounded by angels, and they're appointed to look after us and to minister us. Guardian angels. I don't understand it. I know no more than the Bible tells me. But I do know this, that his servants, the angels, are my servants. They're surrounding us all. They're looking after us. And they're manipulating things for us in a way we cannot understand. And I do know this, that when we come to die, they will carry us. They will carry us to our appointed place. It's the Lord himself who taught that. In the parable, you remember, of Dives and Lazarus in Luke 16, we are told the rich man died and was buried. But what happened to Lazarus? Well, he was carried by the angels to Abram's bosom. The trouble's in the church, isn't it? Did you realize that the angels of God were ministering unto you? Because you are the bride of the Son. From all eternity they've ministered to him and have waited upon him. Yes, because of the new relationship. They're now our servants ministering to us. Oh, God, give us grace to realize we are surrounded by such ministries and ministrations and by such ministers. That is why nothing can finally harm us. They're there, sent by him to look after us. But remember that we are also sharers of his problems, of his troubles, and of his sufferings. He said, if they have hated me, they will also hate you. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. Do we share something of his problems? Are we aware of this? My little children, says Paul to the Galatians, of whom I travel in birth again until Christ be formed in you. He felt something of the pain, but listen to him saying this in Colossians 1.24. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, 
and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. The Apostle Paul was so conscious of this relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ that he said that he was filling up in his own body something that remained of the sufferings of Christ. A wife worthy of the name suffers whenever her husband suffers. She suffers in her heart as she sees him suffering. She shares it with him. She bears it with him. So did the Apostle Paul make up in his own body something of what remained of the body of, of, of the sufferings of Christ. The agony of the Son of God that will continue until the crowning day comes as he works out his purpose in the world. The church is the bride of Christ. Do we know something of this agony, this suffering? The sufferings of the head experienced in the parts and in the portions. And I end by just mentioning the final thing. We share in all the glory of his prospects. That is that world to come once more when Christ who is our life shall appear then shall ye also appear with him in glory. A glorious church, not having spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing, but that she might be holy and without blemish. When he comes in his glory, if we shall have already died, we shall come with him. We are going to share that everlasting glory with the Son of God. This is his special prayer to the Father. John 17, verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. I have given them thy glory and we shall share it with him through all eternity. Is there anything that is comparable to this? To being members of the body of Christ, to be thus as parts of the church, the bride of Christ. Christian people, shame on us. For our weakness, our hopelessness, our complaining, our lethargy, our half-envying the world and all the wonderful life that it has, and the joy and the enjoyment, it's dying, it's fading, it's under condemnation, it's going to disappear, it's passing away. And you and I have this glory to look forward to, the glory that we shall share with the Lord Jesus Christ in that glory which is indescribable, the world to come of which we speak. Well, having taken the church as his bride, he bestows all that upon her. His prospects are ours. His glory is ours. Everything is ours. All things are ours. The meek shall inherit the earth. We'll be landlords. We'll reign over the whole universe. We'll judge angels. You and I, such is the Christian. Such 
is the Christian church as the bride of Christ. Amen.